0: COMING UP ON VERMONT THIS WEEK WE'RE FOLLOWING THE MONEY AS GOVERNOR PHIL SCOTT LAYS OUT HIS BUDGET TO LAWMAKERS
1: I DON'T THINK THERE WILL BE A LOT OF DISAGREEMENT ABOUT WHAT'S IN THIS BUDGET THE DISAGREEMENT WILL LIE IN WHAT'S NOT IN IT BUT PRETENDING WE CAN FUND EVERYTHING ISN'T REALISTIC
0: SO WHAT WILL THOSE DISAGREEMENTS MEAN FOR THIS LEGISLATIVE SESSION AND WHERE DOES THE GOVERNOR THINK INVESTMENTS NEED TO BE MADE ALL THAT STRAIGHT AHEAD
2: From the Vermont Public Studio in Winooski, this is Vermont This Week. Made possible in part by the Lintillac Foundation and Milne Travel.
0: And thanks for joining us on Vermont This Week. I'm Kat Villanzoni. All eyes are on the money at the State House this week, and here to help us break down the governor's budget pitch are a familiar face to this show Stuart Ledbetter from WPTZ and Wallace Allen from Seven Days and Vermont Public's Pete Hirschfeld. Thank you so much for being here. So, Pete, the governor promised a lean budget to lawmakers in his $8.6 billion pitch. Do you think the governor delivered that?
2: uh certainly if we're comparing this year's proposed budget to what we've seen in years past yes uh last year the legislature enacted a state budget that relied on a general fund increase of 13 percent um the governor has presented them with a budget that uses a general fund increase of about 3.6 percent so considerably less not just in last year Um, But in years past, if you look back over the past five budget cycles, we've seen an average increase, average annual increase in general fund spending of about 7.5 percent. Phil Scott says we need to depart from this. We've gotten ourselves to a point where we're on the brink of creating some real fiscal instability as a result of this spending. And he is prevailing upon lawmakers to join him in sort of reining
3: that in this year.
0: And, Stewart, not a surprise, though, to hear the governor ask for a lean budget. He does that
3: a lot. Says that's the available money this year and we should only, only spend what we have uh, and absolutely not pass any new tax uh, or fee increases, noting that there are some that passed last year that have yet to take effect this year. So, yeah, it was a, a, a more sobering um, address. And it comes a week after a pretty good revenue uh, report that suggests there's no risk of recession in the forecast, and state got a modest revenue upgrade. Um, but uh, boy, the tone of the governor's speech was not something that uh, Democratic uh, leaders seem to appreciate.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it certainly was uh, inferred by some of their commentary afterwards that they felt like he was scolding them a little bit.
3: Yeah, I, this is politics, though, and there are $8 billion of, uh, of taxpayer dollars at stake. And I think that, you know, some reality. Uh, is is one thing. I mean, he is coming off a session in which he was uh, he objected to a number of bills, including the budget last year, and was overridden over and over and over again. I think that's stuck in his craw, and he wasn't going to sugarcoat it.
0: Do do were you surprised by anything in the governor's budget address, or was this kind of what you expected to hear from him? This
3: what year? I expected to hear, uh, you know, you, you you can't continue on the kind of trajectory. Uh, when you don't have the, the revenue. I mean, we, uh, we've created sort of this artificial expectation because we were showered in um, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars from Washington over the last several years, and that's still working its way through. But a lot of that's mostly committed at this point, And so uh, that's why you got a 3.5%, 3.6% um, spending proposal.
0: And we did hear a pretty consistent message from the governor about spending, including in education, where he's pitching 24 Billion for the Ed Fund, but he did bring up concerns that we are not getting enough bang for our buck and that some Vermont communities could see double digit tax increases this
1: year. Taxpayers could see their property tax bills rise by an estimated 17.3%. Vermonters can't afford this increase, but we have to be honest. It's not something we can simply buy down or take from another pocket. Because getting it to 2%, as some of you have suggested, would take about $213 million. So we need to work with school boards, administrators, parents, and teachers, because the reality is, changes need to be made before budgets pass. At a minimum, we need to address the factors that fuel these increases year after year even if it won't reduce costs this year.
0: So Anne, it's one thing to ask for changes to be made and a whole other thing entirely to get communities to actually make them. Do you think the governor's message in the budget address is resonating though this year when people think about my home might have a double-digit tax increase.
4: Well, you know, I think when that was announced, when we learned about that tax increase last year, there was a real shock factor that came along with it. And I do think that it suddenly focused people's attention on affordability in a way that we hadn't really hadn't really come together as strongly as before. And now affordability has risen to the top of the agendas for in many of the um, the the smaller races that we're going to see in March and Town Meeting Day, like people are talking about how affordability has become a bigger problem. So it did resonate. There's, there's no question that people—that's that's a very unpalatable tax increase. But if you put it on the districts to save money, you're going to run into a lot of opposition, too, because it's going to mean cutting programs and also uh, a feeling of losing local control, uh, having to meet that. But to come up with $200 million to find some way to defray that cost, too, I, I don't know— uh, how you would be able to do that, or uh, where that would come from at this point with the budget lean? Mm-hmm.
3: There was a hearing on, on Thursday, sort of, sort of asking that question, at which a couple dozen um, local school district uh, leaders uh, spoke before a couple of committees of the state house. And you know, there's there's a lot of uh, oh my, oh my, what what can we do? Um, I'm not sure, Pete, how much of this is is blamed or can be traced back to that Act 127 that. That adjusted per pupil weighting, um, but it came. It's, it's very complicated, and that's that's part of the downfall of the system because it's intensely complicated. A lot of people don't um, don't understand the intricacies of it. But there was this five and ten percent spending cap um, that was intended to uh, help districts that have a lot of um, kids who are either from poor families or who don't speak English as a primary language and who are more expensive to educate. Um, but it the lawmakers in their stern letter to the local school districts that precipitated Thursday's hearing said it's created a lot of unintended spending consequences.
2: Yeah, um, it's it's not the primary factor of what we're seeing in terms of projected increase in, in school expenses next year, but it's contributing to it. It's, it's yet another thing that is contributing to these higher costs. Lawmakers are prevailing upon superintendents, school administrators to not avail themselves of this opportunity to increase spending in their district and not suffer the the tax consequences that on any other year they would experience. Um, But that's sort of a, a, a smaller part of a much bigger dilemma that both the governor and the legislature face. And that is, what tools do we really have at our disposal to get at this longstanding issue of this increase in education spending at this time when the number of students we're actually educating is going down? We heard the governor in his, in his speech say, I've given you all ideas before, right? I put stuff on the table. Some of those things include uh, mandatory growth caps on school spending. They include uh, minimum ratios in terms of staff to student ratio in schools. Uh, he said, Democratic lawmakers, you ridiculed me when when I did that. You tried to make political hay out of it. Um, you rejected it out of hand. So I'm not putting anything on the table. You gotta come to me, work with me. Let's do something together. That didn't go over well with lawmakers. They say, you're the executive, lead by example. You've got this team of advisors that can come up with specific policy and draft legislation. They say that's what they wanna see from him. Um, But we haven't seen from anybody yet a concrete policy proposal um, that they can show Vermont and say, here's what we're doing to make sure that this trajectory that we're on doesn't continue. Lawmakers have indicated they're going to be working on something to that effect. Um, but it is the the big dilemma that they're facing right now. And Senate President Pro Tem Phil Baruth said there's nothing we're thinking or talking more about within our own chamber than this issue of property tax increases this
3: year. Is that in part because they feel some political risk if they don't act?
2: Um, you know... I don't know that Democrats in the House and Senate um, have a high degree of fear about what the Vermont GOP is going to do to them if they don't deliver for taxpayers. We've seen in recent cycles that um, Republicans have not been able to take advantage of weak spots that Democrats may have given them an opening on. Um, but they're hearing it from their constituents, right? Yeah, no, that's what I meant. I think think they're hearing from people on the ground in their communities, you got to do something about this.
0: What incentive, though, is there for districts to, you know, who are maybe not seeing quite as high of tax increases as some others to rein in their spending? I think that's kind of a question I think I would like to to know the answer to, to be honest.
4: I think that's what lawmakers are asking, too. They're saying, is there an incentive for them to do that and, um, you know, or... Uh, so there's, that's why they're sort of asking them, please do the right thing.
2: Mm. And imagine if we did the state budget the way we do the way we do the education fund, where every community in Vermont got together at town meeting and said, "How much do we want to spend on our little geographic region here?" Those numbers would probably increase pretty quickly, right? right. If you're making that decision within that context, exactly. That's that's the system that we have. For school spending. We all get together in our communities and we decide what we want our kids to have. Um, and when it's your kids that you can see around you, you know, your neighbors, um, you want them to have the very best. And so you're going to be willing to support a budget um, that, that rises at a, at a pace that you might not otherwise feel comfortable with. So, so that's the dilemma lawmakers face. Do you actually begin to erode the principles of local control that have governed our education system for so long? Um, and there are a lot of people that think that that's where you need to go. That's the policy decision you need to make if you're actually going to get at this once and for all. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's a fascinating topic and it's certainly one that I think we'll be following on this show throughout the entire legislative session here because it's not going to go away. Certainly not as we get closer to town meeting day and those budgets are actually coming up in front of voters. So we'll be curious to see what happens with that. The governor in his budget address also talked a lot about public safety changes he wants made.
1: Let's start with something You don't hear too often in this building. I may have been wrong. I've supported and signed some of the very legislation I'm asking you to change today. I agree, people deserve second chances, and maybe even third or fourth, especially when it comes to mistakes made as a young adult or when struggling with addiction, but I wish I'd better anticipated the challenge of implementing laws to raise the age of criminal accountability because we weren't ready. We put the policy idea ahead of the fundamentals, the real work of actually
3: helping our youth.
0: So, Stuart, the governor saying he and lawmakers may have been wrong about some of the public safety reforms. What do you make of that?
3: Well, he's right. You don't hear that all the time. But, um, you know, we have really been smacked by the uh, impact of fentanyl and xylazine and this, uh, the grip of addiction. Uh, in our newsrooms, uh, hardly a week goes by where we don't have a, a news release uh, from a police agency talking about picking up somebody uh, who has been in trouble, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 times before and has not uh, been held. Um, it's very frustrating to them. The governor, in his budget address, cited some specific examples in places like Rutland and um, St. Johnsbury, where people commit uh, all manner of crimes, and a lot of it focused on um, um, drug trafficking, while they're out for a previous offense, um, up to and including homicide. So this, this you know, there's been some criticism that we have a revolving door. This catch and release is, is what, in some communities, it's, it's almost come down to. That frustrates the heck out of police we know. Um, Democrats um, push back on some of the governor's proposals that we don't want to put kids in jail, I think was what the House Speaker said in response. But bail reform um, would seem to be uh, a target this year to try to get at at the, the revolving door. Uh, the Democrats would like to increase funding for the judiciary, because part of the revolving door stems from the big backlog of cases that started during the, or before the pandemic.
0: And it was interesting because, um, and Pete, I don't know if you picked up on this too, it, the governor in his budget address, while he talked a lot about the changes he wanted lawmakers to make to Vermont criminal justice laws, there weren't a lot of dollar figures that he mentioned attached to those.
2: Um, there is notably within the governor's budget an increase in the court system at the Defender General's office. This is one area where he did exceed that 3.6% baseline mm-hmm. that he held other agencies to. And he said that was precisely because we are dealing with this backlog of criminal cases in the Vermont judiciary. There's funding in there for two full-time, what, he, what they're calling roving superior court judges that would be able to go to different counties around the state and be able to help, help courts work through that backlog. Um, but, but I think Stewart's right. The sticking point from a policy perspective between the governor and lawmakers is do you, um, sort of break with this decade long effort in Vermont to um, make the criminal justice system more progressive um, or or do do you s- stick to your guns um, and and commit to the path you're on, um, which is one that largely re- relies on decarceration, increasing education giving services and programs to people that find themselves in the criminal justice system.
4: There's a question of whether it is those programs that have led to this increase in crime. Some people say yes, some people say no, but there's obviously, um, uh, it's reached a crisis point in some people's minds in Chittenden County, and it's another thing that is at the top of people's agendas now. It's a priority, um, along with the cost of living. I, I think some of the specific measures, for example, you um, you know, raising the, the age for which people can be prosecuted, some uh, police will say, well, that has just led crime cartels, for lack of a better word, smaller ones, to send younger people up here to commit some of those drug crimes. You know, there's, there are, there's plenty of people saying there, that they can see the consequences of those moves. And then for part of the crime, it's kind of hard to, it's hard to know why this is happening.
0: Certainly, so though, the business community, you know, is, I think, starting to be way more vocal about its frustrations as we see businesses on Church Street and other places say, you know, this is actually making it impossible for me to do business down here.
4: They are. And if you if you can shoplift at a dozen different stores and not be prosecuted because each shoplifting episode uh, episode fell beneath a certain amount, even though The aggregate is, I think, $900 or something like that where you get prosecuted for it. It's practically, it's just a free ticket to shoplift, and I think a lot of people have seen that. If there's
3: any police officer available to respond.
4: Right. Organizations
2: like the Vermont chapter, the ACLU, will will counter, though, like, so what are we talking about? We're talking about putting these people in jail? You want to send them to prison? Um, They cited a cost, I don't know if this is accurate or not, of $95,000 a year per, per incarcerated individual per year. Whatever the number is, it's it's a lot of money, Um, and that's money that adds up quickly um, when you're looking at a statewide approach. Um, So so that's a consideration that elected officials are going to have to take. And criminal justice reform advocates would argue there are much more efficient and effective ways to expend those resources than putting somebody in a jail cell.
4: Like a lot like drug treatment, which is, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there are new drug treatment programs even now that are um, efforts to divert people from jail just because it's it's known that that shoplifting, the underlying cause is, uh, is a substance abuse problem.
3: But I remember former Governor Shumlin made a big point to a, at a previous legislature how it's important to have that, uh, that stick, particularly the first time uh, someone is picked up um, on a drug-related offense to say, look, uh, treatment or you're going to jail. And, um, uh, you know, perhaps that, that will become fashionable again uh, as, as a strategy um, because this, I mean, it was just, it was, it was the day, or the, maybe it was the day before in Burlington, we had a, a case in which two people were held hostage in a, in a bar from a 20, with a 23-year-old kid who uh, police said later had had 100 previous interactions with the police.
0: Another priority we wanted to get to in the governor's budget address was housing. Here are some of the dollar amounts the governor is proposing for those initiatives. We have 6 million to bring blighted rental units up to code, 4 million to help low-income homeowners with their septic systems, 2 million for mobile home repairs, and 7 million to expand shelters. And do you think the governor and lawmakers will agree on any of those dollar figures?
4: Well, it's very, very early in the process and who knows what we're going to end up with um, even three or four weeks from now. But the striking thing about those numbers is how much smaller they are than the numbers that we have seen over the last few years. Even well before the pandemic, we had a thirty seven million dollar housing bond, which at the time seemed astronomical <laughs> to build affordable housing. And then when the pandemic and the ARPA money came along, we've talked hundreds of millions of dollars, most of it going into affordable housing, like multifamily housing, apartment buildings. So. Um, Housing advocates are saying that the numbers they're seeing this year from the governor um, are laughably small compared to what they've been seeing. And as we know now that one of the big obstacles to building housing is cost. It costs an estimated half million dollars to build a unit of affordable housing right now. A lot of those costs are out of our control. They're building costs, labor um, that they have to pay to get it. And so uh, if if we want to move the needle on housing and keep doing so, then... Uh, I think lawmakers are going to push for for more money, because they're hearing from the constituents and from businesses and from just people who want the state's population to rise and want younger people to move in that housing is the number one obstacle.
2: Brattleboro Representative Emily Kornheiser, the Democratic chair of the House Committee on Ways and Means, said after the governor's speech, we can't be nibbling around the edges. She perceived this budget as in those amounts, those housing amounts you talked about, as nibbling around the edges, she said, if we've learned anything from the past five years with this massive infusion of money, where we, we've we actually been able to turn that into government interventions that move the needle, um, she's saying we need to do more of that. There are a lot of Democrats in both the House and Senate that say we need to be doing more of that, not just on housing, um, but you know we're looking at uh, legislation that would vastly expand Medicaid eligibility in Vermont. Um, uh, you, you know, money to improve to increase Medicaid reimbursement rates for providers. So, um, you know, you talk, Stuart, about here's how much revenue we have. And the governor says we need to build a budget that accommodate that, that amount of revenue. And lawmakers, I think, are taking a different approach. They're they're basing what they think the budget ought to look like at the end of the day, on what they perceive the need to be. And their perception of need and the governor's perception of need are two very different things right now.
3: No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, what about uh, Act 250, uh, the, the, take, taking a, an approach that would focus more on regulatory reform?
4: That is one way that the governor, another avenue that the governor is uh, emphasizing as a way to enable the building of more housing because a lot of developers, developers will say that permitting is holding back uh, a lot of the housing construction. And he's uh, suggested some pretty draconian changes to the appeals process in Act 250 that would make it more difficult for local people to stop a project or to limit its size. And we have seen that that's happening. But there is a big question about how much that uh, permitting is really holding back home construction. Because in places that don't even have zoning, like my town, um, there's there's a, there's still no housing being built, and there's a dire need for it, and that's because of the cost. Mm-hmm. I mean, for sure, developers say that, that Act 250 is— uh, and we know that appeals in towns have stopped projects or made them much smaller, but yeah. it's not going to solve it.
0: And I do want to make sure we have time to um, hear from our Democratic leaders responding to the governor's plan. They said it lacked specifics.
3: He talked a lot about fixing problems rather than funding them when he didn't want to spend money. When he did want to spend money, then it was a great initiative that he was willing to describe.
2: I think in Vermont, we have challenges,
0: that's for sure. But we also have opportunities. I think his speech was long on fear and short on hope. All right. It's now up to lawmakers to take the governor's pitch and see what they want to do with it. Pete, what do you think we're going to see, given some of the statements we're hearing? from the leadership in the House and Senate?
2: I think you're gonna see um, a budget that is passed by the House of Representatives in six to eight weeks um, that is in some ways fundamentally different from the one governor's got put on their desks. Um, just one example, the governor's budget assumes a vacancy rate in state government of about 9% next year. Um, that's owing to the high vacancy rate in state government right now. Democratic lawmakers early on in this session are making it clear, we want to fix that. Um, we want to look at how we can get more people interested in working for state government. Um, we want to uh, bring that vacancy rate way lower than it is right now. That in and of itself is a big ticket item um, that is not in the governor's budget. And I could list 10 more. So. Um, I think you're going to see a very different budget. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, interestingly, um, Stuart, something got shot down by lawmakers this week, though. They tried to override the governor's veto on the bottle bill in the Senate. Um, and it's after it sailed through the House at the start of the session here. Um, it fell three votes showed of the majority needed to override the governor's veto. What do you make of that?
3: The Senate took a different view than the House. The, the, the bottle bill override sailed through the House, I think, with 80 percent of the vote. Uh, in the Senate, you need two-thirds as well, and it fell three votes short. Um, there were some Democrats in the Senate who just weren't comfortable um, with such a dramatic change um, to, uh, you know, impose a deposit on wine bottles and sports drinks and, and water bottles, and they got pushback from some of the trash haulers that this would um, uh, devalue the, the, um, uh, their efforts at uh, uh, recycling, blue bin recycling. So. This will come back uh, another year. VPERG says that it has broad support, but maybe it, the Senate didn't feel it was ready.
0: Yeah. Interesting bit of politics, though, to see it kind of pass one, and then they thought it was going to pass, and the Senate didn't, you know, didn't have didn't have the oomph it needed to get through. I um, wanted to get to a piece of education news in Vermont that we think was interesting this week. A small Vermont college goes remote only, and it's not because of COVID cases. Goddard College says it's temporarily dropping residency programs and the future of its campus in Plainfield is uncertain. And I think this is interesting. When our reporting happened this week on it, you know, I found, I learned there were only 12 to 18 students actually on campus in Plainfield at any given time?
4: Right, they have a 115 acre campus with it's a built on the, they're using a lovely old estate uh, from the, that they've been using for decades. But yeah, only 12 to 18 people were coming to campus for their residencies, so the college has slowly been contracting over the decades. You know, they used they once had 1,200 students there in the 70s, and they were full time. And then around the uh, around, I think year 2000 is when they went to part time residencies. And a lot of people in the area and a lot of Goddard graduates have been watching and with trepidation to see what's going to happen to the school because we know what's happening to small colleges. We've we've lost a lot of them, especially like small alternative colleges like Marlboro in Vermont and. Mm. Southern Vermont College, Green Mountain College. So Goddard is struggling with the same demographic challenges that other schools are. And this latest move by their latest president uh, shows that their, things aren't getting any better. And people in the community are already talking about ways that they could use the campus. And then, you know, actually put it to use. Like Cabot Creamery is already housing workers in the dormitory. They have said that they could use more dorm rooms. and actually uh, bring back some vitality to Plainfield.
0: And we'll be curious to see what happens with Goddard College there as they move forward, whether they actually end up removing the temporary uh, remote only or whether they just keep it in place. And thank you so much. That does it for this edition of Vermont This Week. Thanks to our panel, Stuart Ledbetter from WPTZ and Wallace Allen from Seven Days and Vermont Public's Pete Hirschfeld. Thank you all for watching as well. Have a great rest of your day.